Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. At the end of the last podcast, I said that we would be talking about the Hunter-class frigate program in this episode. And while we'll get to that, a bit more information has come to light about AUKUS and the nuclear-powered submarine acquisition. So let's have a look at that first. Now, to make it clear, I've got nothing in particular against nuclear-powered submarines. I don't have any ideological hang-ups. They're great if you want to travel underwater very fast for very long distances. My grizzle is that I find that so far, there's been very little justification, though, for Australia to acquire them. And uh, a couple of days ago, I was reading an article by former Senator Rex Patrick, who I know very well. Rex, in fact, used to be a contributor of ours before he entered politics. He is a submariner by background, and his views are always worth listening to. He's also a sceptic when it comes to nuclear-powered submarines, and he's used the analogy of saying that the people in Australia that are fascinated by them seem to be like car fanatics who really just want a Ferrari no matter what. And they're so motivated that they don't really care that you can't drive it on dirt roads and that the kids have to go without their shoes. They simply want a Ferrari for its totemic value. I've got to say, going by the information that's been provided to the public to date, it's very hard to disagree with that. Again, just because so little sensible justification for spending up to $368 billion on them has been given. Now, my own view, I don't have a crystal ball, but my own view is that when we look at the time frame involved, say somewhere around the year 2040, that would be the time when, under current planning, some second-hand Virginia-class submarines are in service with us. By then, I suspect that the South China Sea is going to be a complete no-go area. And that's because there'll be so many bottom-mounted sonar arrays, so many uninhabited underwater vehicles hunting submarines on behalf of the Chinese Navy, so many minefields that no one in their right mind is going to send a crude submarine into that area. So if we take operations in the South China Sea out of the equation completely, what then is left to do with our fleet of nuclear-powered submarines? Other navies need attack submarines, SSNs, to protect their own ballistic missile firing submarines and hunt those of other nations. But Australia doesn't have any ballistic missile firing SSBMs and there are no plans to protect them. So what are we going to do with our nuclear-powered submarines? Hunt Chinese and Russian SSBMs? Protect US assets? None of this has even been touched on in any public discussions. So Australia, pretty much uniquely, with the very partial exception of Brazil, is the only country on Earth that has no nuclear industry to support nuclear-powered submarines, and we also have no SSBMs of our own to protect. So that knocks 
away, I would have thought, even further props to the argument that these things are essential for the defence of Australia. As I've touched on before in writing, for people who say, oh, well, we've got to protect our sea lines of communication, I'm not sure how good submarines are at doing that, by the way, then many of these problems can just be changed by sailing west of the Philippines. Yes, I come back to the awesome speed of nuclear-powered submarine. In Virginia class, you could travel from Sydney to Santiago completely underwater in 10 days. But so what? What extra real capability is that providing to Australia? Anyway, all of that is just my speculation, my conjecture. Now, here's the new information And this has come out of the United States. It hasn't been provided out of Australia. And I think you'll soon understand why. Because the $3 billion that the Australian government is somehow committed to giving to the US to subsidize their industrial base, it just appears to be without any justification or any substance. According to US sources, and these are you know, the information is quite widely available in the US, is that the $3 billion, either all of it or $2.5 billion with the rest going to the UK, that remains hazy, that just gets tipped into US consolidated revenue or rather defence revenue. And in fact, laws have to be passed in Congress to allow this to occur because it's unprecedented that another country would hand over these sorts of amounts of money for no particular purpose other than subsidising someone else's industries. We don't get any products for it. That There's no requirement for any of that money to be spent in Australia. People in the US tell me that also there's nothing preventing the US spending some of it here But there's no requirement for that to happen. It might just be a best of intentions thing. I mean, $3 billion. Who negotiates these things? Who has the authority to commit such gigantic amounts of money? $3 billion is just a little less than what Australia is spending on the entire Arafura OPV program. Our entire aid budget is $4.5 billion. At least that buys us a lot of regional goodwill. But $3 billion just transferred to other countries to help them out, particularly when US defence industry is incredibly profitable. I mean, those guys are really just raking it in. Now, more information that's come out of the US relates to the schedule of when Australia could conceivably receive second-hand Virginia-class submarines. Now, I've previously said that I don't see that the US would deprive themselves of submarines. Turns out, of course, that logical position is correct. The US is currently producing Virginia-class submarines at 1.5 per year. I previously said there was a little bit of uncertainty about it, but I'm told by people in the US themselves that 1.5 is the current level. And they say that they need to get to 2.5 per year before there's enough excess submarines for some of those to be transferred to Australia. Now, yes, US industry is ramping up 
and to mesh in with the Australian timetable of expecting to get the first of ours in about 10 years' time, they have to be hitting this target of 2.5 Virginia-class submarines by 2028. It's a massive ramp-up, and indeed companies are hiring a lot of people and new facilities are being built. Having said that, to go from the current 1.5 to 2.5 within five years to me looks wildly optimistic. I think it's more likely that if the ramp-up succeeds, it'll provide this sort of excess capacity and much more like the mid-2030s. So again, there's going to be a very large gap before Australia receives any nuclear-powered submarines whatsoever. And we're forking out this advanced payment of $3 billion with no accountability. Is it any wonder that the government and Navy and Defence don't want to talk about this? If you were to walk down any Australian street and speak to people at random and say, what do you think of this idea of us handing over this amount of money to the US? The first question that you would surely be asked is, oh, what do we get in return? And if you say nothing really, we're doing it as a goodwill gesture, people would just be appalled. But Defence, Navy and the government have adopted a strategy of saying as little about this as they possibly can because they know that they would be held up to ridicule. The problem that they have got is that people in the United States and in Britain feel free to talk about these things, whereas here it's forbidden. I'll conclude on this part of the, the podcast with a couple of final observations on the submarine front. When the US provides its annual $2 billion worth of funding to Israel, military funding, the stipulation is that all of that money be spent on US equipment. Now, when it comes to this industry contribution that Australia is making, surely we could use the same logic and say to the United States, if there's even any agreement that this is a smart thing to do, and clearly I don't accept that, But even if the powers that be do think that we get something, some benefit from this, surely the way to do it would be to say, okay, we're prepared to make a $3 billion goodwill contribution, a sort of buy-in to the Virginia class program, but that $3 billion has to be spent in Australia. We will give to you $3 billion worth of componentry for the Virginia class submarines, and you just specify what they are, when you want them, and we'll take care of the rest. Now, the quick response I've had from a couple of people that um, that I've run that past is they say, oh, well, yes, there'll be issues, though, of qualifying Australian industry. Yeah, if we're going to be consistent, Australian industry is going to have to be qualified anyway to support Virginia class submarines when they start to be forward deployed here. And then if the, I think, mythical UK-based SNR, AUKUS submarine program, ever develops any momentum at all. So surely now is the appropriate time to deal with that. Spend the $3 billion here. Don't just hand it over to the UK and the US as this goodwill contribution. You can probably tell I'm getting a bit stressed because for me, it's an act of madness. And I'm not surprised 
that everyone in defence is running for cover on this one. It's just such an embarrassing thing to do. Ah, okay, deep breath. Um, Hunter-class frigate program. There have been a few developments recently, and because it's such a big topic, I'm going to attempt to grapple with this over several issues. I don't think that we can do it in just one big hit. And by the way, rather than just have this litany of complaints about programs being mishandled and money being wasted, there are some solutions. Yes, there are some things that can be done, and I'll get to those in the appropriate time. They involve big structural changes, so they're not easy. Otherwise, they would have been done. So the picture is not entirely one of gloom and despair, but it's going to require a lot of political will to make them happen. Anyway, okay, let's have a look at the the hunters. There's a review underway, of course, of the entire surface fleet to be conducted, I think, embarrassingly by a retired USN admiral. You might be a very nice person, but why we can't do it ourselves, I have no idea. Personally, if I was the chief of Navy, I would have quit. If a minister had said to me, we're having an external review being done of your future requirements, I would have said, that's clearly a vote of no confidence in me. Goodbye. I'm off to play golf. Anyway, that's a side issue. Doesn't really matter. To my great surprise, there was an article in the Australian newspaper by Cameron Stewart, who I know a good journalist, and Cameron wrote that the Defence Strategic Review actually was in favour of scrapping the entire program. Now, I don't know whether that's true. I hadn't heard that myself. And in fact, I thought that the Hunter Class program, along with a few other matters, had been like August had been excluded from the DSR, but I really don't know. That's The DSR did conduct itself in isolation from the department. I can't rule it out. Now, just think about this for a moment. If the Hunter Class program were to be cancelled, it would mean that Navy would have managed $9 billion worth of losses for not a single hardware item being produced, because that's $3 billion for the cancelled attack class program. And the current spend on the Hunter class frigates is an amazing $6.16 billion. That's not my number. Anyone can look it up in the budget papers. For that, we get the design, we get some mobilisation costs, we get some long lead time items. $6.1 billion without a single ship. So three for cancelled attack, six to get. It's a frightening number. Surely someone sooner or later has just got to say, this is crazy stuff. For that reason alone, I suspect that the uh, th- there's just no way that the hunter's going to be cancelled outright. I think the decision will now be about the number of ships. It might be three might be six. It's hard to see under present circumstances that that the original nine would be held to. I thought it would be useful, though, to compare and contrast for this episode Hunters with a parallel program, namely in the US for the Constellation class. Now, Hunter class frigate was ordered in 2018. If we're lucky, we'll get the first ship in 2030, 12-year interval. In the US, the Constellation class was ordered in 2020. Construction started in 2022. 
First ship will be launched probably in 2025 and then delivered in 2026. As well as that, for mobilization and design costs, the US has paid about $1.2 billion. I've converted to Australian dollars compared with the $6.16 billion that we have committed. So clearly there is something way out of kilter with the Australian program. The US design is based on the Frem frigate, F-R-E-M-M. That was one of the ships that Australia also looked at, but we decided instead to go for the British Type 26. Now, if you look at the design changes needed between the Type 26 for the Australian requirements and the Frem for USN requirements, they're actually quite similar. The US decided to lengthen the frame by seven meters. Their architect, their naval architect said that's not a problem at all. Australia, we decided to stick with the whole form of the Type 26, and that seems to have caused a lot of problems. The US is switching out, as we are, the entire radar system, introducing their own radar suite, the SPY 6D radar. In Australia, where I've got the CEA radar suite. Both ships have 32 VLS cells. FRAM itself has 48. Both navies have come up with a lower number. But the USN Constellation class has 16 canisterized naval strike missiles plus a rolling airframe air defense system. So the argument that you hear from some people that it's the Australian-specific modifications that have caused the delays to the Hunter-class frigate program, that's not quite right. I mean, it, it is to an extent, but the United States has managed to incorporate equally significant modifications, and they've been able to stick with quite an aggressive schedule. So I think it all comes down to the choice of the original design. The United States went for a genuinely proven product, worked with that. The Australians went for a developmental frigate in the form of the Type 26. And I've got some insights into why that decision was taken. It's not a very pretty story. A number of us, including me, were deceived. And in the next podcast, I'm going to give you a whole lot of details about how that happened. Bye for now. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefencereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.